All right, Gary. Well, look, you are somebody that is seen as a very influential person in the industry. And I was actually, when I first started the Rental Journal podcast, someone mentioned to me, it was like, someone that you've got to get on the industry, on the podcast is Gary Radford. And so the first thing I did was I actually listened to your podcast episode with Christy McCormack, where oh, you yeah. went on and, and spoke about it. And uh, just listened that through the, the stages of you building up your own business and whatnot, and then just watching the marketing effect that you can have on a business and grow it as well. So I thought, we need to get you on, hear about your story, who is Gary Radford, and then sort of go from there. So thank you for coming on the Rental Journal podcast. Oh, thank you for what you're doing. I think you're adding a lot of value to the industry. Very good. So to start off with, let's just explain who is Gary Radford, where do you work now, and where are you based? Uh, so where I work now is in Brisbane, um, in the Mint organisation, which is kind of born out of the transition from Vortex to MPE and uh, I work about 12 minutes from my house with a bunch of people that I really like and uh, we happen to be uh, selling generators and other things at a time when it's not super hard to do that because the market's booming and, and we're having a good time being well supported. Awesome and so to, to backtrack in terms of history you've obviously built up many businesses over the years and various brands where was your first start into the equipment rental industry? Similar to yours, believe it or not. I, I, um, I started out, not this part, but I started out managing restaurants and um, I was up in Mackay and I came down to Brisbane and just applied for 600 jobs and uh, one of the jobs was Recca. I didn't even know what that was. And um, I went and got interviewed by Richard Greenwood. Um, he told me my shirt wasn't very well ironed and a whole bunch of other insults. Um, I got the job anyway. He went on to become probably my primary mentor in my younger years, along with Mark Rich. Um, then I was blessed in that organisation. That They were going through a lot of structural change. I got thrown into a lot of jobs that I should never have been given at that age and with my level of unbelievable incompetence. Um, but there were just incredible people there to teach me and hold my hand, like, you know, Robbie Branch, as I said, Richard Greenwood, Mark Rich, those sort of guys. Um, and then I got moved back to central Queensland when they were building Calide Sea and had a ball up there with those guys. And there was a few little management changes that probably sent the business in a direction I didn't 100% agree with in terms of customer service. And I just happened to get a phone call one day when I was in Wheeler from um, Kev Ennis, who had... Um, recently uh, been appointed as a sales manager for Dompro, which was Andrew Donald and, and his excellent father, not that he's not excellent, but his father, Ian Donald, were in charge of and they offered me a job and I, I came down to, to Brisbane and worked with those guys and that was an excellent experience. Um, from there, what changed my life was I read Robert Kiyosaki's book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and um, pretty much made the decision that I wasn't gonna get where I wanted to get to on wages. And I went out and started a rehire business effectively. So I went and got on the, the suppliers list with government and semi-government utilities who struggled to get gear. And I said, I'll get you hammers, nails, forklifts, scissor lifts, whatever. And I used my contacts to basically rehire a whole bunch of gear. Um, and then I got a, also got a gig uh, doing some consulting work to a power business. And those guys had a falling out. I had about... I think a hundred grand cash in the bank. I thought power was a good thing. Got on a plane, I went to Singapore, opened the yellow pages in the airport, 
under G for generator and I, I scrolled through until one person, Sim Quang Yao from Pramac, agreed to pick me up from the airport and I threw a check on the table, um, bought a container load of gensets, came home to Australia, um, started Generator Solutions and sort of... This podcast episode was sponsored by Boom and Bucket. I love that name. Such a good name for a company, Boom and Bucket. Boom and Bucket was started by two ex-Caterpillar employees and is the easiest way to buy and sell heavy equipment. If you're selling, Boom and Bucket will inspect, photograph, market and sell your machine so you can focus on your rental business. If you're looking for new equipment, Boom and Bucket has hundreds of inspected and guaranteed machines that you can browse and buy from right on your mobile phone. See why the average buyer gives Boom and Bucket a 9.5 out of 10 review. Check them out at boomandbucket.com. Went from there, I guess. Wow. So so I've heard a lot of people have come out of the rec air days and something about that organization, there seems to be like a very strong culture and a lot of yeah. leaders came out of that organization. What, what was it about rec air that made it different, do you think? Look, I think it's a couple of... I think it's also important. It's too easy to cast Coates as the Darth Vader and Wreck Air as the Luke Skywalker. Like, that's the way I saw it because I was a teenager and there's all these iconic people around me, Stan Lober and, and those sort of guys. I think it was an era that was very customer-focused. Andrew Finnis, those sort of people that were just, just legends of that era. One thing I think Wreck Air did spectacularly well was develop juniors. So Richard Greenwood had a program, I can't remember what it was called, like, you know, Junior Executive Future Program or something like that. And he made a special effort to get the younger people in the group into the organisation. And he, he did it in a way that I still think rental industry should do it. There was a little bit of formality about it, but it was mostly about throwing you into every part of the business next to good people. So you would start out and you'd spend three months in accounts receivable chasing money. And then you'd be down the, the back shed with Kev Hosky patching toilets and cleaning out sheds. And the next day you'd be out um, with George Mully learning how to be a branch manager. Um, and through osmosis, by the time you got to be ready for a leadership position, you'd done everything in the organisation. You understood mm. the business from the shop, shop floor to the boardroom. And... Um, Richard Greenwood's a very bright guy, and I know that was by design, but he implemented it in such a way that it seemed accidental. But I think um, that that's what set Rec Air apart. I actually remember very specifically being at a um, like a it was a strategic planning conference thing up in Bribey Island, and there was Daryl Greenwood, Stan Lober, a whole heap of other people. I don't want to miss anyone's names, but I remember looking around the room thinking look at the team I'm on. Yeah, Daryl went, those sort of guys, like who's going to beat this crew? And then um, John Tate, Gary Northover, those sort of people gave me the opportunity to go and do different things in, in different geographies and different parts of the business. And, and um, I was lucky enough to have a good enough group around me that we did really well. And I, I loved it. I, I bled yellow. I still, like I was at the... Um, I was going past the hospital the other day and there was like an old road barrier there with an old wreck air stick oh, on wow. it. You, you'd nearly choke up about it. <laughs> Coast guys are going to hate hearing this. But, but, um, but yeah, I think I would like to reframe that wreck air discussion more as a... Um, there's a little bit of a golden era there, I think. 
when when the industry firmly understood what it was and, and it's a people industry mm. you look after your people people look after your customer the rest of its asset management it's not that complicated and the fact that you were doing so many roles as part of that program that there's a mentality for the employee itself to have that yes mentality yes i want to take on more opportunities yes I want to challenge myself. So is that something that you always had or where did that come from? I think that's a product, once again, of the leadership group, Robbie Branch and those guys. This podcast episode was sponsored by the Fleet Office. Get away from paper documents and spreadsheets and become more compliant by using a cloud-based fleet management software. Save money by streamlining your hire business and understanding your fleet and utilization better. Create quotes, invoices, allocate equipment and operators to jobs and easily compare your projected income with your current invoices, making you more profitable. Pre-starts, risk assessments, maintenance, timesheets, dockets and asset efficiency all managed on one easy to use platform. Learn more at thefleetoffice.com.au They would just dare you to do it. Like that, and and they would believe in you. And when you tripped over, they would point and laugh, but they would pick you up and dust you off, and and off you would go again. And I think one of the good things about the rental industry is if you sit around a table with anyone who's been in the industry long enough, all their stories are about the mistakes they made, and and those are when you those are the times when you kind of come together as a group. So I think it was that um, the leadership, the innate leadership in the group, was such that. Young people were not afraid to take risks and have a go. Um, and I think also the dynamic of the organisation at the time, which was Brambles owned, was that there was a lot of opportunities. So I stayed at Rec Air for, I don't know, I think six years, something like that. But I probably had eight different jobs in that time and worked across four different geographies. I got to be involved in the EMS development, that EMS program, which went on to be the tool store stuff like what Coates does with Chase. Um, and I was constantly learning and growing and around people that always took time out. Um, an interesting thing for me in retrospect when my career went full circle was Wayne Harding, who passed away a few years ago, who was a, a Coates icon and um, almost like an arch nemesis, I guess, in my mind. He was this big, scary, giant guy from Coates and... When I got to work next to him at Onsite, I realised that that same help these young guys get after it um, existed at Coates as well. So I'm sure there's a lot of people at Coates that feel the same way that the ex-Recarians do. I just think that the Recarians are... Sure. Uh, the Recarians in two things, they, they, they're probably a bit better at telling a tall tale. And secondly, it doesn't exist anymore. So... You know, the older you get, the better you were and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, for sure. So. so the fact that you went and started your own business with a hundred grand and just put it all on the line, where did that come from? And, and how did you how did you build up to that moment? Stupidity, seriously. Like um, it's what I say to people now who are considering to do their own thing. Um, do it while you're young, have a crack. Uh, the worst thing that can happen is you learn. You become, you're not going to be, you're not going to get any, less experienced or talented by by taking a risk when you're younger. Um, you're only going to be more valuable either as someone who tried it and it didn't work and you go and become an employee. Or what's more likely to happen is 
you'll probably make a lot of mistakes and trip over and, and keep going. And, and um, I think probably what you're experiencing with this podcast as well, where you, you're stepping into that entrepreneurial space is it's like an itch in your brain. And once it starts, once you get that vision, it drives itself. Mm. And so talk me through the evolution then. Like you, it was, it was rehire business to begin with. Like yep. how did, and then the generators, how did that evolve? Well, once again, it was... Um, I always been unbelievably blessed with meeting the right people at the right time i'm, I'm just so arsy at that it's not funny so um i actually started sharing a shed with adrian martin from fork force when he first started okay. out at rock lee we had this shared a shed together and obviously he went on to much bigger and brighter things than most people would know him he was incredible um and in the early days of uh Generator Solutions, I bid on the Extrata Rolleston job up in central Queensland and a guy from Extrata called Graham Rattenbury um, just gave me a chance that he should never have given me to do a job I was probably commercially incapable of completing and he just backed me and we did the job thanks to the great people I had around me at the time. Uh, we executed extremely well and he just went on this campaign of recommending us to mining companies and it was just a blessing. It, like we would just get phone calls from, from BHP and Rio Tinto and we'd be powering camps and we'd bring on more and more good people. Um, and obviously it got to a point where funding that became a challenge. Like anyone who's good enough will outrace their money. And um, I uh, joined forces with Steve Clements at the time um, Wasp was his idea, by the way, water, air, service and power. He's a, he's a character. I've had some of my best times with him and some of my scariest ones. Um, and then I guess there were other, there were other individuals and organisations that just for some reason took a liking to us and, and off we went. Kennards was a big one. Kennards took a punt on us early. Um, uh, Peter Gibris from Premier Hire, um, he came in wanting to expand into generators one day and, and stood next to me and said, I want to start by buying some used generators. And he said, what do I do if they break? And I said, I'll give you money back. And he shook my hand and backed his big shiny truck in and took a whole bunch of generators away. And um, Kennards did the same thing. Um, and then we took a punt to go to Western Australia and people like um, CBI and those sort of people. Once again, I, I, think, they, I think everyone kind of likes a entrepreneurial story if that makes sense mm. i think if it's sincere and uh the people around you including your staff your suppliers your your customers feel that there's a degree of sincerity and a degree of competence there that they, they want you to have a go yeah do you know what i mean i think, I think there's so. a, yeah definitely. there's a little entrepreneur in everyone and it's kind of like um if you're coming up against much larger competitors which we always are australia in particular has a tendency to cheer for the for the little guy i think and you've got to back yourself that's the thing you said it was stupidity but then when someone comes along and says i want 50 generators or 25 generators or whatever it is and you go well, how do we cash flow this how do we how can we build it in time and it's just a matter of you backing yourself and then getting the right people around you to help build it yeah it is i think the rental industry is unique in that regard um I'm sure everyone's going to have their own view on this, but the, the real challenge with rental is it's a grow or die business. 
you have to keep feeding the beast otherwise you'll get eaten um, and that makes it difficult you, you very quickly start to outrun your ability to fund the organization you have to make decisions obviously um, at the age I was then I didn't have any experience I didn't know my ass from my elbow at that point so I got a lot of good advice um, and then we we finally got to a point where we'd won some really really big jobs um, and um, I think the other thing is because we had a genuine value add model during that uh, the financial crises we, we managed to grow because we were delivering things like fuel consumption benefits and carbon reduction and because we were independent and scaled and some of the early decisions we'd made maybe by accident for example to source the equipment directly from overseas where we had margin advantage and things like that um, we were in a really strong position during down cycles in the industry and I think that's the real time mm. where you where you make your growth and then so wasp eventually was sold on to onsite i believe was yeah that- so next capital owned onsite um uh wasp was i think geez you forget this after all this time but i think wasp was about 65 percent sales and 35 percent rental something like that um obviously the rental arm being absorbed into onsite a lot of our customers that bought equipment were rental companies and you had that old dilemma about buying off a potential competitor. Um, so then I created the Red Star brand and we used that as the capital sales arm, which went on to eventually be sold to JCBCEA. Um, yeah, and that was the reverse. These are the how incestuous the industry as well is so that Kev Ennis put me on into Dompra, which was a life-changing thing for me. And, and um, uh, I employed Kev into Red Star, which was probably a, a less positive life-changing experience for him. Um, and then off we went. And that experience for me would be one of the, the three big game changes in terms of learning. So Scott McDougall, who I would say, without fear of too much um, opposition, is the best CFO in the industry. He's the best one I've ever seen. He held my hand through that um, due diligence process, which was very difficult, but it was a, a baptism of fire. And I learnt more through that than I'd learned from the preceding 10 years. Um, and then once again, Scott McDougall basically said, and Next Capital were good with this, this as well, but particularly Scott McDougall said, look, I think if you make 10 decisions in the field with a customer, I reckon you're going to get seven right. You're going to get two that'll be okay and you'll get one failure so i'm just going to back you and that was that reminded me of rec air where it was you know go west young man we're mm-hmm. going to look after you off you go so we went and sat in front of projects that were absolutely enormous i think we spent 90 million dollars on denio generators in about a three-year period um and smashed it so we had a very specialised sales crew with guys like Craig Watson who were just such a perfect foil to the stuff that I was terrible at. And um, once again, customers supported us. Chris Baker from CBI, Len Greenhalge. Um, you'd go and have dinner with these guys, these relationships that you'd build and they would trust you to do enormous projects. And then the people on the ground in your own organisation would sort of feel your trust in their in them in their ability to execute Mm. and it sort of took care of itself and um 
yeah, it was just it was a it was a great ride. Luke Wistini came on board, which was a person that I learned a, a lot from. Um, and yeah, on site was cool, interesting. So you so you sold Wasp part of the business out, and then Red Star eventually became what it is, and then that sold off. You worked at Onsite then for a period of time? I worked for Onsite for, I think, a good six years. It's probably two years more than I should have, which is a good learning for people who sell their businesses, I think. Um, I probably should have gone back out and done my own thing earlier than that. Not for any negative reasons within Onsite. I think it's... um, uh, I I wax lyrical about my theory that a business goes through three stages of growth. It starts as a, a race car moves into like a Sydney to Hobart yacht where you can sort of step away and trim the sails a little bit, then eventually it becomes an oil tanker where you're, you know, the likes of Coates and even Rec Air and businesses like that. And on site today where they're so big and, and so hard to turn that your main job is looking at the icebergs. Yeah. And I think maybe the biggest learning I've made in my career about myself and also when you're recruiting other people is that people are generally suited to one of those three stages of growth. And if you find yourself down the other end of the spectrum than where you're suited, it can become a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, so talk me through the mentality of, of building up your own business and then working for an organisation again. Like, was that a big shift that you had to make? Um, not so much because I think one of the most interesting things that happens to you once you work for yourself for a long time is you do step outside of the matrix the 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 idea of hierarchy and and um, chain of command and all that sort of stuff sort of becomes a bit foolish to you in a way if that makes sense mm. like you still got to respect order and people have got to be accountable etc but I think you you generally catch this disease that says if it's a good idea it's a good idea and we're all in let's go um, and I think that's probably to my point about staying too long at on site myself I think that at some point when it becomes an oil tanker, if you throw a racing car guy into that, um, it's not going to be good for the racing car guy and it's probably also not going to be good for the organisation because the racing car guy is going to agitate pretty hard for change and mm. try and keep it racing. So, And then so when you got to that eight years or was eight years at on-site? It was about six years yeah, at on-site. Six years at on-site, what then happened? Um, so I moved out and... Um, couple of years prior to that i'd started playing around with the idea of the sumo board product the competitor to to um lifeguard the jackson business where daniel booby had absolutely um changed the industry when it comes to to distribution boards and done a great job and always had this thought that we could have a brief style briefcase style product that was a little bit easy to move around basically it wasn't a massive innovation but i thought it would work and I'd played around with that idea in my head for a while and we'd gone and got it started and, and I'd gone to Next Capital and said, look, I want to go and do my own thing. Um, they'd convinced me to stick around for a bit longer. Um, and so when it was time to part ways, I went off and started to do that full time. And um, yeah, the progression after that was that uh, I'd moved back into power with Rhino and then um, had a very serious family illness with my wife that um, nearly cost her life. And uh, I'd I'd probably been pretty heavily exhausted from on-site. It was was an amazing experience. So many good people. It grew so quickly. 
Um, but it was a big beast and it took a lot out of me. And um, I think I was ready to go and build a small little business over at Rockley and maybe put some of my older kids through an apprenticeship and, and cruise along. Um, but then when I saw how hard my wife um, fought through that illness, I was kind of ready to go again, to be honest. And um, Andrew Aitken came along at the right time. And um, that's why I'm so grateful for Vortex, because Andrew Aitken came along uh, at a time when um, things were pretty tough. And um, sorry, this is supposed to be a bit of a lighthearted uh, podcast, but that experience at what was then Pumps United and became Vortex with so many good people at a time that I desperately needed it, it was so good. I'm so grateful. Yeah, it's it's amazing you going into this sort of detail because even from the outside, I see Gary Radford, I see this legend that's gone through all these businesses and to know that even you go through these vulnerable periods where you're struggling um, and to know that someone like Vortex really picked you up in that period of time because I can't imagine the struggle, even just the stress of your family. You've got eight kids, eight yeah. kids. Yeah, yeah. That's in itself. So all, all the, the stress and I can never imagine the pain um, that your family was going through during that period? Well, at the same time, like I think Rhino was a, a five-person business at that stage and, and we obviously, Robbie Pearson was a part of that. He's here now and was through the Vortex as well. At exactly the same time, he lost his two-year-old to cancer and um, those sort of things can become a catalyst. Um, in At Wasp, for example, Steve Clements lost his 10-year-old son suddenly um tragically and that was a devastating blow obviously for him and his family but also the organization i think i think that's a moment that polarized the organization i think that's where private companies can win you've got to bring that emotion to the table you've got to mean it otherwise why do it why not go and work for no offense to these organizations obviously but why not go and work for a, a caterpillar or someone like that where you're a small cog in a big wheel and you're safe and you'll get paid the only reason you would is if you believe in it and you believe in the people that are running it. And um, I've been extremely blessed to see both sides of that from a corporate side and the benefits of that and also the privateer side. And the um, I think especially in rental, which is a service industry, if you put a group of people together who are competent um, that love each other, it's a pretty hard thing to fight. Yeah, definitely. it's a pretty hard thing to fight. It's pretty hard to kill an idea, um, and customers and other staff they can smell it. They can smell that sincerity. It really matters. And I think the other thing too is to be able to be open and honest about the mistakes you make along the way. And I've you don't have a long enough podcast for me to tell you that. <laughs> to go through these to, mistakes to tell you that. and and even even things I wish I could go back and do differently personally. Yeah, no, it's great to hear how transparent you are in, the, in this process. And something I want to touch on as well, even with the sumo boards and then eventually into the Vortex side of things, owning your own brand. Was that something that you ever really imagined when you were younger or how did that come to your, your mindset? And what does it mean to own your own brand? That's a good question. I think when I was younger, I grew up in a caravan park. I went to 21 schools. I was always the new kid. Um, and I think I kind of grew up with a chip on my shoulder. And at Rec Air, before I'd read Kiyosaki's book, 
you know, I always imagined myself in a Versace suit on the Brambles board and I grew out of the caravan park and, you know, all that, the music cheering in the background and all that sort of stuff. I soon got sick of that. But I also, also believed that these private equity types and these high-flying CEOs that I'd never associated with as a child, I thought they had some magical secret that they could teach me that I was going to end up at the top of the corporate ladder and all of a sudden all these magic tricks and relationships would be opened up to me. And I think the biggest revelation to me was um, by the time I was fortunate enough to be in that position, I realised I knew everything I needed to know in the caravan park. Wow. Which is try and get yourself around the right people, um, try and learn as much as you can, uh, try and be kind if you can, try and say sorry when you're not. And um, I don't know, maybe be brave or dumb enough to, to suck at something new as well. I think that's important. Like anyone, people talk about me like a generator guy. If you go and talk to any of these technicians out there, if I want something fixed, I'll walk out there with a shifter and walk towards a machine they'll tackle me. I couldn't change the oil in my car. I can tell you how it works and what it does, but I'm not a, I'm not a product expert. I think um, it probably comes back to why I love being in and around the rental industry because people matter. And if you look at the, the people I seek to learn from now the most because I've got, you know, my children, my older children are becoming adults, allegedly. And... Um, I look at people like Ian Coleman, um, Andrew Donald, um, Air Construction's a company that I do work with, Tom Kelleher, Eamon Kelleher, to a much lesser extent, Tyg Kelleher. Um, These organisations that have gone through two generations and it really is a family, I I find that incredibly inspirational and I think um, that's a perfect metaphor for how to make an organisation go, especially if it's an underdog and especially if it's a privateer. It's the only thing that makes it go. Mm. Well, let's talk about Vortex Kit then because yep. it's a good example of having yep. the right team working yep. together as one. Yep. Um, Vortex was a different beast altogether when it came to the culture, the marketing, the branding, bringing multiple organisations together. Uh, having someone like Stephen Donnelly, he's probably the most humble person, but one of the most successful people in the industry as well. How did that team cohesion work? How did you, it seems to be like the magic formula of getting everyone on the same page and working together. How did that work with Vortex? You just nailed it. So it's Andrew Aitken and Stephen Donnelly. So the thing that brought me on board is that, and Andrew obviously did this deliberately. I, I hadn't spent much time with Stephen Donnelly. Um, Andrew took me to Sydney and we spent the day with Steve and he spoke about the thing, we spoke about a lot of things obviously, but the way he spoke about his father and Andrew spoke about his mother made me realise it was the right business and it flowed from there. And on top of that, um, Carnegie was an unusually empathetic private equity business as well. No offence to you private equity types out there. (laughs) Um, But Matt Beach, for example, at at, um, Carnegie, obviously Chania who came on full-time eventually with Vortex. That stuff flows from the top. Like Andrew Aitken is an absolutely incredible human being. You look at what he achieved in his sporting career playing for South Africa. 
and then translating that into into business success and he will talk to everyone in the organization he's the most humble guy you'll ever meet and i think that just flowed from there Mm. and what what the vortex thing itself specifically was really a lesson that i learned at onsite so onsite bought wasp and then bought lou christini's business statewide in western australia it really was the coming together of three businesses. It wasn't an acquisition by Onsite. And I believe Onsite made a mistake by not rebranding because it left some legacy issues where the Onsite, some of the Onsite people felt like they were the acquirer, if that makes sense. And that created a little bit of tension. And um, the discussion reasonably early on about finding a new name for Pumps United to bring all of those organizations together was critical and that's what vortex really was it was how do we build a common flag because all those entrepreneurs stayed in those those businesses which, which was amazing to me dean hurlstone from conhurst stayed in um gill obviously stayed in um seb's family stayed in i stayed in all those entrepreneurs stayed so all of that staff loyalty they had on the ground and that passion even though there were some cultural clashes there as, as which is inevitable when you bring private organizations together um i've got to tell you a funny story that when because andrew aitken is the most diplomatic person ever and he has a way of teaching you things that eventually makes you feel stupid but in the beginning makes you feel special um and he sort of charged me with going away and coming up with a new brand. And I, I thought, let's keep one of the, the legacy businesses. And, and Gil's brand was Vortex. I obviously spoke to the other entrepreneurs and made sure that didn't offend anyone. Um, we spoke about the ground cultures that needed to change to form a new culture. And then obviously the emblem of the fish, which was the fish means water for the pumping side. It had the anglerfish has got the light out the front for power. There's all these other things. If you talk to Mark Snooky, gets into some disgusting analogies. But um, at the end of the day, we put the logo forward and the brand forward. And I remember Andrew Aitken ringing me up and saying, "It's great. It's wonderful. I've given it to everyone. They love everything but the fish." And I said, "So they love the font." <laughs> and so Andrew went into bat to hang on to that fish. And, and what was exciting for me was that eventually that big banner became loved by everyone that fear the fish thing that was not around for very long and the amount of brand loyalty that went into that from the staff that then flowed into the customers and the suppliers i don't think i've ever seen anything grow that fast and have that much equity in it as a brand it was really cool yeah that's probably a topic we can talk about on its own I've never seen such good brand marketing from an organization in this space like Vortex. The fear the fish, every week I saw some type of uh, picture or advertising. Forbes or what, Friday. Forbes Friday is yeah, a good yeah. one yeah. that came out. Is that you? Is that a team? Like, Where did that come from? How do you get that, that marketing on point? I think um, the, the way I think of it is to make a... The reason it takes a team to make a business work is you can get people who are good at creating a story. And I think I'm pretty good at that. I'm good at creating a story and synthesizing a message. You've also got to make it real. 
So if you take Forbes Friday, for example, that's a cool thing. People really engage with that. Also happens to be that Mark Forbes is a legend. He's incredible. He's so good at his job. He's a lovely human being. And so in order for... I guess it goes into talking about the difference between a logo and a brand, right? A logo is a sticker on the roof. A brand is what, what goes into it. So in order for, for Fear the Fish to have worked, it had to be true. I think it's that simple. I think everyone meant it. Um, and I, I keep trying to distill the real success of that organisation. And I still go back to that thing I learned at Rec Air with old blokes, daring young blokes to charge over the hill naked at the enemy. And I look at that and I think Andrew dared everyone to have a go. And then, especially when COVID started, we did a thing called um, Operation Zombie within the organisation. And that was, everyone's going to panic now. We don't know what's going to happen. We can't go and see our customers. How do we rally the troops and make more people know that Vortex exists than ever before? How do we be brave in a crisis and I think that was about throwing the gauntlet down to the older heads in the group the Brendan the Brendan Donaldson's the James Sebs the Mark Snooks um, to lead because there was a plethora of talent of young people in the organization you got Shayla there Shayla Schultz now um, Clint White those they both won turbo mega awesome rental guy of the year or whatever it was and they deserved it um and a lot of other people on the ground that are too too many to name and i think daring those older heads to to lead and motivate those young people is what what made it work um yeah and i and i think if you if you follow that naturally up the river it starts with people who have a sincere desire for people to succeed like Andrew Aitken and Stephen Donnelly. Stephen Donnelly really means it. He really means it. I know you've interviewed him, but he's actually a good person. Andrew Aitken is a good person. Gil Milton is a good person. Just vegetarian. Just Yeah, he's not. I didn't say he's not a good guy. <laughs> he's a good person. Um, but the last thing I'll say on that, I don't want to go on about it too much, but the last thing I'll say, obviously the crew that was around me as well, like real close to me, my immediate group, the Robbie Pearsons and the John McCormacks and those guys. Um, if a business going that fast is hard, takes its toll, it's probably the most my health has ever been affected in an organisation. I loved it, but it was hard. It was really fast. Yeah, I wanted to hone in on your branding okay and, sure. and your branding and what it means to own your own brand sure sure so so just to give context when you have your own brand that you own what does that mean and what's the difference compared to just partnering with an oem okay well um it obviously means that you're protected so it is a, it is a double-sided coin by the way so so if you are partnering with a brand, you obviously get the brand leverage that that brand brings to the table. So if you were a distributor for Atlas Copco or Denio or whoever, um, if that brand has already got value in the market, then you get to leverage that. The downside is obvious. They own the brand equity. And if circumstances change or 
let's say something that commonly happens, a, uh, an OEM changes its distribution platform from dealers to they're going to set up their own branches. If you've spent the last five years growing a private company and the, the, the backbone of that company was I'm a ABC proprietary limited dealer, they can just come and take that from you. So it's a fine line. I, I won't say, look, my strategy is absolutely to develop your own brands if you can and either manufacture your own products or white label them or as we do, a combination of both. The other thing it does obviously is um, you can build equity in sub-brands. So, you know, we've got a stable of brands at the moment that could be sold one day as a group or could be sold off individually to different different people. So I think you've got to keep that in mind as well. Um, and look, I learned a lot of this from the work we did at Onsite with um, Professor Mark Ritson from, from Melbourne University. I recommend looking him up online. He's an unbelievably smart person in this space. So I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. I, I, I do it the way I do it because I'd rather be in control of my own destiny. Um, Having said that, if you've got an exclusive territory as a Mercedes-Benz dealer, there's tremendous value in that yeah. as well. So maybe just to give the listeners some context, um, what are the brands that you currently have under Mint and, and what, are, what what does that brand do? Okay, that's a good point. So I think um, the way I, the metaphor, I, maybe it's because I started out running restaurants. I never thought of that before you asked me this question. I always imagine any business as a restaurant and I think about... Um, how to get close to the customer and how to start out with a simple menu that the customer can understand so they know what they're getting. Um, the, within the Mint Group, we've got power, fuel and distribution. That, that's part of the brand positioning. Um, and within the power group, we've got standby machines, stationary machines and mobile machines. And that's pretty much how we break it up. So the Fushtard brand has got a stationary and a mobile range and the Aston brand which is the Japanese product is the mobile brand for serious fleet owners so it's the one that'll last for 20 years basically then Sumo is fairly obvious it's a distribution product so if for example Aston, Elec Aston Electric creates electricity Sumo transports it safely around site so that's cables plugs connectors distribution boards and then Pirate Smart Tanks is the fuel business mm. so something I was thinking about was You've had so many entrepreneurial stints and so much successes. Eventually, Vortex was sold off to NPE. Is it, impo is it Im important to not get attached to the brand so much? A great question. Um, Mark Ritson says you've got to eat your babies. And he's, he's right. And it's very difficult to do, especially if it's your first business or you're still in the business you've always had. Um, it's a hard learning that it's, it's very easy to fall in love with your brand because you, you don't stop and think about what you're actually in love with. And I've been lucky enough to go through the cycle a few times and realize it's just a sticker on the roof. What you love is the experiences you had with the people within that organization and, and the ecosystem that supports that organization, right? So the suppliers, the customers, the staff, the community and, and your environment around you. Um, and you could put mint on the roof or you could put banana power on the roof. It's, it's what you do inside that organisation that makes that brand mean something. But um, 
I have seen the folly of falling in love with your own brand. It can make you make poor decisions. Mm. And so something that you seem to be very good at is bringing people along as part of the journey. So we were talking before the podcast that we recruited some staff from um, like Barbecue Galore, for example. Yeah. So, so maybe it would be interesting for you to talk about how you recruited some of your staff yep. and, and how you mentor them along the way and what it means. Well, I wouldn't say some, I'd say most, to be honest. I think, um, you know, I believe all the cliches that the really, really successful entrepreneurs talk about, the Richard Bransons and those sort of guys are true. Um, you can really teach anything but how... I'll, I'll say it bluntly, you can teach people how to do anything but how not to be an asshole. So um, there's, there's a couple of good anecdotes around here, of course, like our um, sales manager sold me a barbecue during COVID and the way he handled the transaction made me employ him immediately. Um, one of our tech guys sold me a bike during COVID and the way he's handled himself with about 5,000 customers around him made me, obviously I use the barbecue more than the bike, but um, I think if you, if you find people that have the right attitude towards other people, um, they've got a base level intellect, a curiosity, and they're industrious. I, I really believe we could go out tomorrow and start a business selling pillows and be successful. That's amazing, isn't it? Well, I just, I just think it's true. I think you can get the technical knowledge if you've got the right culture the right culture is hard to develop. It's even harder to maintain. Um, and it's that box three rule that we really brought in at Vortex that changed the game. And that's an old principle. I won't bore the Vortex people. I get so bored hearing this. But essentially, if you imagine two axes and, and on one axis you've got a person's competence and on the other axis you've got the person's cultural alignment, right? So basically one... One axis says, are you good at your job? And one axis says, are you an asshole or a nice person? You end up with four boxes. Box one is someone who's not culturally aligned and not particularly competent. Very easy to do, get rid of that person. Box two is someone who's not yet competent but um, very culturally aligned. You train that, that person. Box three is a person who's extremely competent but toxic. And then box four is a competent person who's culturally aligned. And, you know, if a business is to go well, you're constantly trying to get the box fours to move into a bigger job where they become a box two again and learn and to pull the box two behind them. The hard person is the box three. And I see that undo businesses every day. It's such a powerful um, observation that if you talk to any person that has a job, and you explain to them that a box three person is someone who's really good at their job, but they're just a prick. Nearly everyone has one person come to the front of their mind. I've, I've actually heard this. I was listening to, I think, a TED talk. Yep. And someone was saying, at every business, you can walk in and say, point to the arsehole. Yep. <laughs> and, and it's possible. It's tougher than that, though. It's point to the competent asshole. That's mm. the problem, right? So you get a sales guy that's making it rain. And everyone around him is miserable because he's... I shouldn't have picked on sales, but you get my point. Sure. Um, it's very hard to move that person on. Um, in my experience over time, the energy that that box three person takes out of your box four group 
is always more powerful than what you lose by making them move on. Yeah, I think businesses, they get trapped in this addiction to the the money or the success or whatever it is that that person's bringing the organization. Like, if we fire this person, we're going to lose half our revenue. We can't let go of that person. But then the toxicity that they're spreading amongst the organization is much worse than the revenue loss or whatever it is that you're going to lose. The real problem is the box four people tend to be the ones that don't complain. So you can't see it. You can't see their reduced productivity. Often they can't see it. They walk in the door and they can't stand being around this particular individual. They don't even notice that it's affecting their productivity. So it takes a huge amount of discipline. Probably I would say it's the ultimate leadership discipline to make sure you know who your box threes are. Just under that would be the old adage which is true that in any organisation, this has been proven in studies, 10% of your people are doing 50% of your work. Make sure you know who they are because they know who they are. And I think you'll find at the moment with a a big crunch in terms of supply chain and a shortage of staff, um, organisations that are turning over a lot of people are realising the pain of that. Mm. you've got to make sure you lock down that 10%. They've got to know that they're valued. They've got to have a long-term career progression plan. Um, They've got to have incentives in place that make them stay for reasons that aren't just money. Yeah, and I think you only realise that when they leave. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's the same. I guess it's it's kind of two sides of the same coin, right? You only realise how toxic someone was when they leave. And if you don't do your job properly, you only realise how, how powerfully influential someone was in your organisation when they leave. Yeah, it's, it's a real challenge to manage the culture of an organisation, especially I was thinking about it just then, the fact that you said if you went downstairs with a wrench to try and <laughs> to repair something, there's business owners that can repair it and they micromanage everyone. And so if the toxicity starts at the top, it's, that's an even harder problem to change, yeah? Well, one of the really cool concepts that I learned at Vortex was from Jason Mance, who was the HR person there. And um, because I'd, I'd obviously been very reflective over the on-site experience where three very different cultures came together to try and form one organisation, had enormous success and also enormous challenges. And I tried to understand... What was the key to avoiding those challenges outside of branding? And um, Jason had a very simple insight. You grab the entrepreneurs in charge of those brands, study what their values are, and that's what will drive the various cultures. So I'll use as a specific example, Vortex. So um, Mobile Dewatering Western Australia, which was James Seb's business, their culture was what I call MacGyver culture. So they would take a rubber band and a paper clip and build a pump and send it out to Rio and get the job done. And they built an entire organisation around that. And for a private company, that's a wonderful thing to have and a very hard thing to let go of. But once you want to go to scale, you can't, you can't keep that. You've got to honour it, respect it and say, that's what got us here and that's what we love, but it's not one of what's going to get us there. If you look at Gill's business... You know, if you didn't work 22 hours a day, there was something wrong with you. So it was a high, high um, industrious culture. And most of their stories were we drove here at three o'clock in the morning and did a sewer bypass and Gil had some terrible disease, but he still climbed down a hole and all that sort of stuff. And um, 
whilst you've got to honour that and, and show that that's a powerful thing that grows a private organisation, it's obviously not sustainable once you try to go to scale. And then um, the rhino culture, I couldn't put my finger on it, which I knew was a big lesson for me. And I actually sat in front of our group one day and I said, I think there was a dozen people in there. I, I understand what the mobile dewatering culture is. I understand what the vortex culture is. What was our culture? And they all just said arrogance. And it was a nice way of saying that the rhino culture was, we're all in this together. We're a family. It's a war. Let's go. It's a really powerful thing to build a private culture on. But when you then merge three companies, and I got to experience this and have people who thankfully were brave enough to say this to my face, it's not a very welcoming culture. So you're either part of the team or you're not. It's very binary. It's very black and white. So when you bring those organisations together, getting the entrepreneurs to sit around a table, talk about and, and I guess celebrate the virtues of their historical culture that got them to where they are and then recognise and formally make a list of values that you'll need to go forward is, is critical. Mm. Yeah, some great advice. And I guess we didn't touch on it earlier. Eventually, Vortex Group of Companies would be sold to NPE. Yep. So that process, that for me, that sort of came out of nowhere, but obviously there's a lot of lead up to it. So, um, No, it did come out of nowhere. Yeah. I, I think it was, it was an inspired acquisition. I think um, the background of NPE is a really interesting story. If you look at Lottie Namola and what he did with selling his business to United in America and then um, the REL acquisition. I think he's just pretty good at that. Um, I thought we had two years left to go at Vortex, to be honest, um, at least. It was never a secret within Vortex, by the way. We were owned by private equity, right? If you're owned by private equity, at some point you're going to sell. Um, it came earlier than I thought. And I think um, whilst Vortex got a good multiple out of that deal, I think NPE got... A bargain as well so and it was very fast like mm. NPE executed on that flat out they slapped green stickers on the roof and and um, it was done so it was very clinical and and well executed yeah and no, it did seem like it came out of nowhere um, and then merging like those two organizations together I can imagine it being a challenge in a way because Vortex there was this beast that was just growing and branding and NPE I saw as more this stable organization that was there being larger than, than, than vortex um so then merge obviously we're not part of that now but i can imagine that being interesting trying to keep that culture but then having the the, the person actually acquiring it to to have that culture that they've already built up over time 100 percent um so and obviously i was up front with Stephen donnelly and andrew in the beginning that when we did get to exit i, I probably well i definitely wasn't on board to go to the next step as I did with Onsite. I'd, I'd kind of learned my lesson from that. I wanted to be extremely helpful during the transition and then go off and do another thing. So I can't really comment on the integration because I wasn't a part of it. And when you interview Gil, I'm sure he'll have some good insights on that. Um, but that organisation still seems to be growing like a weed. and, and um, Like a weed. Like a weed, <laughs> like a weed. And um, yeah, oh, they've got enormous capability. They've got enormous scale. Um, there's, some, there's some big privateers in the market now like the yuan's and well yuan's not so much a privateer anymore um but there's some really 
still fast growing scaled rental businesses that make the future interesting in terms of what's going to happen in terms mm. of consolidation yeah. all that sort of stuff so so a couple of questions just to learn a bit more about you obviously you've mentioned some pretty tough challenges that you've gone through don't make uh, me cry again <laughs> <laughs> i want to set the, the waterfalls on but <laughs> like you mentioned you've made a lot of mistakes yep. along the way is there some mistakes or challenges that you can talk about that you think would be really uh, valuable for other entrepreneurs or business owners or even just staff members that could learn from um i try and i think it's really um at onsite, we ended up doing some personality profiling in the executive group. I found that enormously beneficial for myself. Um, so I think one of the things I wish I had done earlier is make a bigger effort to understand myself fully. Um, because even what you're alluding to now, I, I sometimes get frustrated at, which is where people see me as a as a marketing guy and then I want to say well, see that thing over there I designed that and I think of myself as an engineering guy and even sometimes people buy sumo boards now and they'll say I like the look of it and it might sound weird but I almost get insulted like I appreciate the design aspect um, but in in the back of my mind I'm always thinking about value proposition selling how can I save you $10 so you give me $5 extra? And that's genuine strategy, right? I'm escaping the model of perfect competition. I'm not going to be ground out. I'm going to continually find a way to make you money so you can make me make more money. Um, but I'm also aware that because of my communication style, I can come across as a sales guy, if that makes sense. And so closing out on your question... The biggest piece of advice I would give is really deeply try and understand yourself and make an effort to reflect on the decisions you've made in your life that have led to bad outcomes for you and others and um, try and work on that stuff and, and also try and constantly seek input on that. Challenge your team to criticize. I don't have to challenge this team to criticize me very much. I have to ask them to be nice. But... Um, yeah, I, I think that's it. I think people, probably the, the, the best leadership advice I ever got was that from my grandfather. Humility and empathy are at the core of any good person you'll meet, I think. And the key to humility and empathy is probably vulnerability. Very difficult to do probably as a male in general, but certainly in a leadership role. Mm. And I think the trap that people fall into is they want to carry their team up the hill. And what they miss is that the only thing that doesn't show weakness and emotion is a machine. People don't trust machines. So if I could go back and tell myself that, I would say open up more about when you're struggling, um, let your head noises out a bit more, and you'd be surprised how much people connect with that. Yeah, they realize that you're just a, a real person, a genuine person. And yeah, it, it builds culture. Well, I think more importantly, you realize that they don't suddenly not respect you as a leader. They actually trust you more. They go, well, because we're all the same, right? You've got the, the facade and the, 
and the darkness or however Carl Jung explains it but the number one thing we've got in common is those fears and doubts and uncertainties that creep into our head as our head hits the pillow at night everyone has that I've never met anyone that doesn't I've never had a meaningful relationship with another person professionally or personally where um, being open about that hasn't added value to the to the connection and I think whilst that sounds a little bit fluffy um, even if you want to look at it from a, a purely analytical perspective business is very simple it's about extracting the discretionary effort of your people and in order to be able to do that you have to be able to trust each other and in order for them to trust you they have to see you as they have to identify with you they have to see you as a vulnerable human being mm. i think it's hard for a lot of leaders to show that vulnerable side and they probably see it as if i show that i'm struggling or i show a weakness that the organization or my competition or my customers are going to think that i'm weak plus it becomes pathological and it spreads right so then you get a group of executives who are all scared to be vulnerable they look around the room no one else is being vulnerable they start sniping at each other you get this internal conflict my brother um when he joined vortex he said something extremely insightful insightful he looked around the room and you know look at who we had on our team it was like american dream team there's andrew aiken stephen donnelly and the list goes on there's 30 people there that are dominant industry professionals with extensive experience and 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 my brother said um we got two big guns on our hips and if they point it out all the time we'll win if they start pointing in we'll lose really powerful insight and yeah. I, I repeat that often if if you're in a, an organization you're having a conversation about something stop and ask is this us pointing our guns in or we're pointing our guns out i love that mm, it's very good it's That's the only smart thing he's ever said <laughs> you're funny <laughs> so so to finish off how does gary radford define success you've obviously gone through a lot in your life so far <laughs> with what you've just described but when you sit back and you think success what does it actually mean to you i think it takes on different forms i think professionally it sounds like a cliche but if i look at the people that have come through organizations that i've been lucky enough to be involved in and the success that they've gone on to have I feel immensely proud of that and I can't help but think that the cultures that we developed influence their future success and vice versa. Like it was this constantly evolving cycle that someone of fundamentally good quality comes into an organisation, makes that organisation's culture better, that culture rubs off on them and they take it out somewhere else. So I think professionally that's what I feel most proud of. Um, and personally, I think it's, I don't know, I think as you get older, you realise that you could spend forever building a bigger and bigger pile, if that makes sense. Mm. It takes you forever to learn that. But once you learn it, it's a funny thing. I was trying to think of something you said before that made me think about it. When you said, oh, people focus on the financial outputs of a business, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, you have to do that, right? Because that's what a business is there for. 
The way I would phrase it differently is if you focus on the behavioural driving inputs, right, so how do we be smarter, nicer, kinder, more loving, have the group like us better and customers like us better, the financial reports are an outcome. I think some people forget that. Um, it's funny because when I think about that, I, I know I've said his name too many times, but I think about um, Scott McDougall. And, you know, if you said to me, let's go build a, uh, let's actually go build an oil tanker rental company. The first person I'd hire would be the CFO. Give me a financial guy that cares about people and understands sales and understands the value of customers. So, um, yeah, that was a long way of not answering your question. <laughs> no, no, you did answer it. And I did have a follow-up question because having eight kids, I, I, I have one and I don't have time. So how do you manage building up these businesses with eight kids and still have time? Like how do you manage your time? It's easy. They've got to eat. It's a good motivator. If you, if you don't work, they don't eat. No, but seriously, just to clarify that, I had six kids on purpose and then twins accidentally, so I'm not some cult leader, even though six kids is already a big family. Um, seven kids is a mental illness. I don't know what eight kids is. Um, everyone has that challenge. It, it, everyone has that challenge. It's the fundamental challenge as a business person. Um, it's what unites everyone, I think. I think it's the reason for safety. It's the reason for wellness. It's the reason for culture. I know um, towards the end of some of the stints I've had in bigger organisations, I've allowed the pressure of work to make me a poorer father and a poorer husband and a poorer friend. And you've got to you've got to try and people call it work life balance. It's hard to define. I think I think the answer goes starts with the obvious observation that. If you take sleep out of your life, your job is half your life. If your job sucks, your life sucks. So be careful. It'll mm -hmm. sneak in. It'll become part of your personality. The resentment you take home from being in a business that either doesn't appreciate you or even something less insidious like you're a racing car guy in an oil tanker is just not a good fit. The organization's not bad and you're not bad. It's just not a good fit. That'll creep in um, and I think bringing it full circle, the learnings I took from nearly losing Jules and, um, sorry, you got me going again, and definitely Robbie's son dying was that you got three parts to your life. It's like an engine. You got your personal life, your career, and your physical health. And my grandfather taught me that. And he sat me down one day and he said, which one's the most important? And I said, your family. And he said, wrong. I didn't say, which one do you love the most? I said, which one's most important? And he said, they're all actually as important as each other. If you let your physical health go to shit, you won't be as effective at work and you'll be miserable at home and you'll die young. If you have a shit job, it'll start affecting your mental and physical health and the impact on your family is obvious. And if you have problems at home, they all bleed into each other. So 
probably ties up into a nice bow as to where I see the future of business and potentially a positive effect of COVID with this great resignation and, and people stepping back and having a bigger look at their whole life rather than actually making a separation between work and home, seeing it as a continuum. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that I have this theory that I look back at when I first started in business around the attitude towards safety, right? And I grew up as a construction brat as well, you know, that building things without breaking people story. I think the future of industry in general and perhaps the expansion of safety and HR is into a word that I hate, but I'll use it anyway, which is wellness. And I think our industry and the construction industry and related fields, mining, should be proud of um, the journey, the safety journey that the organisations went on where today most businesses would be able to sincerely put a sticker on the wall that says you've got to go home in the same condition you came to work. I think the next challenge to organisations is how do we send people home in better shape than they came to work? How do we actually incorporate their personal life and understand that it's a critical part of your organisation? So, so if you are going to work and you're going home a lesser person or a more depressed person or an angry person, how do you realise that? How do you... It's the ultimate challenge. Like you asked me about the mistakes I've made and when I look back at the things I've done that I really regret, it's because I wasn't self-aware. I didn't know I was being a dick. I didn't know... Like that's the ultimate challenge, right? That, self, that self-awareness that gives you the ability to change. You've got to recognise it for starters. You can't keep blaming other people. You can't do the, yeah, but what about, you know, that guy did this to me, so I did that to him. Well, that's a race to the bottom. Mm. Yeah, and I think if you have a strong relationship at home with your family, which is transparent and good communication, then the the barriers aren't up. Because if the barriers are up, things build up over time and then eventually the whole thing crashes down. So having that good open communication with friends and family obviously helps out with that that uh, that mental side as well. Agree. But I think the broader problem is understanding that your work is part of your family, literally. And for business leaders to realise that your staff's family is part of the success of your business, Right. Yeah. Like, you know, imagine how many people are walking around in a large organisation with crippling debt problems or relationship issues or substance abuse problems. And, you know, I look at the way that people try to deal with that now with, you know, outsourcing. Um, and I think it's a sincere effort to do it well, but outsourcing, I can't remember what you call it now, you know, where you call an external party and you can call this staff helpline and talk about your problems. In my experience, I've seen staff view that sort of stuff as call someone who cares. So I wonder if the future isn't more about the integration of rather than separating, you know, being able to separate your work from your personal life. I can't help but wonder whether the answer is actually the opposite of that, Mm. that when you come home from work, you've learned something today that's added value to you as a person, you go home happier, healthier. And I mean physical health, mental health, 
career advancement, study, whatever it might be. I think um, that might be the future. Yeah. Hopefully. All great advice and truly a legend of the industry just for the amounts that you've gone through. And I, I really uh, thank you for being so transparent as well and turning the waterfall <laughs> a couple of times. But uh, thank you for coming on the Rental Journal podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. And thanks for what you're doing. I think, I think it's adding a lot of value to an industry that needs it. This podcast episode was brought to you by our premier partner, Kenan Tower.